Worship Center. Here at North Sub, it's important to us, has been for some time, that we let God's Word set the agenda for our sermons, meaning that uh, we don't use this as a way of supporting our words as preachers. Uh, instead, we attempt to use our words to illuminate what's in this book. So when you preach like we do, uh, there's some passages that are hard to preach because they're intellectually demanding. It's like, I, I can't just skip this because it's confusing. How do I help people grasp what is going on here? There are other passages, though, that aren't really confusing at all. They're just as hard to preach, though, because it's like, well, how do I help people grasp how serious this is? Today's passage falls in that latter category, I think, for me. It couldn't be more clear what Jesus means in this text, plain as day, but you and I come to this sermon today, this sermon text, with every incentive in the world to explain these words away this morning in such a way that they aren't maybe as intense as they seem to be on the surface. So I really believe we need the Holy Spirit's help this morning to, to battle that rationalizing impulse that's within all of us. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. There's a self we all have in here. This inner subjective sense of who we are, who we believe ourselves to be. Humanity has wrestled with this over the centuries. What are we supposed to do with that sense of self? It's not much of an oversimplification to say that history has been dominated by two answers to that question. Uh, traditional and Eastern societies have largely said something like suppress yourself. Suppress your sense of self for the sake of the group, for the family, for the village, for the nation. Since the group is more important than the individual, then when the two come into conflict, suppress self to take on the identity that the group needs you to take on. That's the answer of traditional Eastern societies. Again, oversimplifying. But on the other side, modern Western societies have largely said something like, express yourself. So much so that if, if you try to stand in my way of expressing my deeply felt sense of self in the year 2021, you're doing something morally wrong, if not criminally abusive. Carl Truman's excellent 2020 book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, explains how we got here. But you don't need to read the book to see that we're living in a society that preaches the throwing off of the shackles of family, of culture, of societal institutions in favor of freely expressing the authentic you, the authentic me. So if traditional societies say, suppress yourself for the sake of community, or uh, lay your life down for something bigger than yourself, and our society is saying, express yourself regardless of community opinions. And life's not worth living if you can't be your authentic self. What says Jesus about the self? We're going to find out today. Would you turn with me to Mark 8? Mark chapter 8. If you haven't turned there yet, you're going to want to be there. Uh, as you're turning there, let's remember where we left off. 
We're preaching through Mark 8:22 to 10:52 this fall. Last week in verses 27 to 33 of chapter 8, Jesus told his disciples who he was and what he came to do. With regards to who he was, he acknowledged, as Peter said at first, that he's the Messiah. And they all looked at each other and said, great, everybody loved that news. Then he said, hey, and by the way, I came to die. And his disciples said, uh, excuse me, what? Peter in particular, you remember, was so opposed to that news that he actually tried to rebuke Jesus, which went about as well for Peter as you would imagine that that would go. In this week's text, we pick up where we left off and see that Jesus wasn't interested in stopping at telling them who he was and what he came to do. Who he was and what he came to do have implications for what he expects of his disciples, first and foremost, and by implication, what he expects of us as those who follow him along the way. So what's Jesus going to say? Is it going to be something like the traditional lay yourself down for something bigger than yourself? Or something more like the modern life isn't worth living if you suppress your authentic self? Let's find out. Jesus starts out in this passage by teaching three hard things his followers must do. And then he gives four reasons to do those three hard things. So three hard things and then four reasons to do those three hard things. And yes, this is my way of trying to smuggle seven points into this sermon. First three hard things a follower of Jesus must do. Let's reread verse 34 again. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's look at those three in order. First, deny himself. Deny himself. When I first read these words, deny himself, it, it almost sounded to me like Jesus, is Jesus calling me to lay down my identity in some sense? To give up the me that feels so authentic? To be honest, I kind of hope it's not as extreme as that. What does Jesus mean by deny? We get a clue, I think, in chapter 14 of this same book, Mark, when Peter denies Jesus, same word is used. If we were hoping for some less intense depiction of denial, we get the opposite. During Peter's denial, he uses the strongest language to vehemently separate himself from Jesus. Peter's denial of Jesus, in which he actively distances himself from Jesus in such a way that it severs the relationship, is actually consistent with the use of that word deny across the literature. And as such, it seems here in Mark 8 that we're called by Jesus to some version of Peter's, I swear I don't know the man with ourselves at the other end of that pointed finger. Now that sounds confusing, if not impossible. Like how can I say, I don't have anything to do with him when I'm referring to me? Make it make sense. Some scholars have helpfully pointed out that it does make sense if a new self has been created. If there's a new self, then there are now two selves, one that can do the denying and the other over there that can be denied. And what's that look like, practically speaking? Well, my old self over there structured life around my own dreams, my own plans, my own desires, my own passions, my own script. New self distances himself from that old self. New self can disown old self's agenda in order to claim Jesus' agenda. 
New self can unplug the wires from old self's programming in order to request reprogramming according to the Spirit. Even when everyone around me is saying, embrace your old self, express your old self, the new self has the power to say no to old self and yes to God. That's denial of self. Now, for some Christians, that self-denial is very obvious and very powerful. I think of missionaries who could be making decent money and living a comfortable life in the States who instead pack up and minister the gospel in impoverished or dangerous nations in order to follow the Lord's call. I think of gifted, godly women who, against almost every voice in the world around them and despite opportunities to the contrary, choose to submit themselves to imperfect male leadership in the home and in the church because that's what they see in the scriptures. I think of men and women who have only ever experienced attraction to the same sex and who therefore choose celibacy over their own agenda for their sexuality despite acute persistent longings for romance and family. I look at those heroes of the faith and I say, that's, that's what denying oneself looks like. But two or three years ago, I, I was convicted. I was listening to a pastor named Sam Alberry. Some of you know him and have heard of him. He's same-sex attracted. He's celibate. He said, you know, other Christians sometimes approach me and say things like, <clears throat> you're a hero. It's amazing how godly you are. I don't think I could do what you're doing, denying yourself that way. And what he said is, you know, I actually, I feel deep concern for those people because... And I usually say something like this. He said, he said, if you think what I'm doing by denying myself in the area of my sexuality, if you think that's denying myself, but you can't name any areas of your life in which coming to Christ has required costly denial of yourself, you may not yet have come to Christ. And I realized I was convicted by that because here I am buying into the belief that costly denial of self is something that only a select few Christians are really called to. Right? Well, the rest of us are called to something different. In reality, all of us have areas of our lives that will be extremely painful to give over to God's design, whether wealth or career or family or temperament. Jesus doesn't say here, some who come after me will have to deny themselves. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Second, take up his cross. Second hard thing Jesus says here, take up his cross. It takes a little work to grasp the meaning of these four words, take up his cross. When we've gotten so used to so casually saying, it's just my cross to bear. We're talking about the neighbor who set out his garbage on my side of the property line, right? Jesus' original hearers, they wouldn't have been like, amen, preach it, Jesus. I've got an annoying boss and a crazy mother-in-law. Everybody has a cross to bear. Jesus' original hearers would have probably let out an audible gasp at the fact that an otherwise respectable person would even speak about crucifixion in public. Yes, Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going to be handed over to the religious leaders and killed. Even so, death by crucifixion is not the sort of death anyone would most naturally have imagined for Jesus. First of all, crucifixion was a distinctly Roman punishment. 
Well, Jesus said he was going to be killed by the religious authorities. Secondly, this most horrifying of tortures was reserved for the worst criminals, insurrectionists, escaped slaves, people the Roman Empire most wanted to make an example of. So when Jesus says, anyone who wants to come after me must take up his cross, his listeners wouldn't have heard, grin and bear it so you can make it through your daily hardships. No, at the moment when you pick up your cross beam, they knew there's exactly zero hope left for you. Jesus' listeners would have immediately gotten a graphic picture in their minds of someone stripped half naked, already sentenced to death, picking up the beam onto which their wrists would soon be nailed, carrying that wood past a screaming mob, spitting curses at them for being a stain to society. Imagine being Jesus' disciples as they listened to this. Fast forward a few years, and following Jesus would quite literally cost most of them their lives. They would be killed for this, 11 out of the 12. So this isn't just a, there goes Jesus with the hyperbole again. Jesus is instructing them in the baseline minimum requirements for following him. This is what it was going to take for them. Now, as a preacher, this is when I'm supposed to say, but it's unlikely any of us will have to give up our lives like they did. But ever since April 20th of my eighth grade year, those words have kind of rung hollow for me. Do you remember uh, that day, the Columbine shooting? The stories started coming out that one or two of the students were asked a question right before being shot, are you a Christian? For me and many young people my age at the time, that day was a turning point for us when we realized, wait, what is the point of going through the motions of religion if my religion isn't worth dying for? Personally, I remember spending hours thinking about it day after day. Like, would I say yes with the gun to my head? Would I die instead of forsaking Jesus? Now you say, well, that sounds like you kind of had some kind of martyr complex. And for some of us 13-year-olds, that line between taking Jesus seriously and developing a martyr complex probably did get a little blurred at times. But what I can see now that I couldn't see then is how different these words are here from a, some sort of masochistic death wish. With the benefit of perspective, I can now appreciate Jesus' straightforward honesty here that since his journey is about to take him to the cross— we just won't ever be truly free to follow him until our entanglements are set aside. Entanglements that include our instinct towards self-preservation. Put it this way, you can't follow a person who lays down everything he loves most while simultaneously clinging to the things you love most. If we set out to be followers of a person who lays his life down, we're going to reach an impasse if we remain committed to not laying our own lives down either. We follow him all the way to the cross, or we realize we were never following him at all. We were just following our own way and just happened to be walking in the same direction for a little while. Third, follow me. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Quick one for uh, seminary geeks. Make note to do a quick look up of the verbal aspect of deny, take up, and follow. For the non-Greek scholars, denying oneself and taking up one's cross are depicted here as contained events. 
while follow me is depicted as though we're at street level with a front row seat to watch it unfold in front of us, the following. In other words, the verb tense here gives an ongoing sense to the third of these actions, follow me. Uh, Like once you've denied yourself and taken up your cross, now come along on this ongoing journey, this process of following me, Jesus says. One implication of this is that we never outgrow or move past the call to follow Jesus along the way. We have to be careful, though, when we just start throwing around the word follow uh, without defining it, because there's a risk that we start treating the following of Jesus as if we're following a celebrity on social media. Like, oh yeah, I follow Jesus. He's one of the, he's one of one of the one of my favorite follows. Actually, I'm I'm pretty familiar with what he's all about. I like his teachings. I've even shared a few of his quotes on Instagram. Of course, Jesus has a different sort of following in mind. Jesus's listeners here would have heard these words in the context of a Jewish rabbinical system. Jewish rabbis, like Jesus, had disciples who followed them everywhere, doing what the rabbi did, striving to become like the rabbi in every way, not just to learn what he knew. I had this impressed on me strongly on a study trip to Israel, 2004. Uh, The leader of the trip, 17 days, he taught us in the style of a Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago. And so we would be walking around the countryside, and every once in a while he'd stop and teach us a lesson, and then he'd just start walking again, and we'd just pick up our stuff and start following him and just hope we could stay close enough to him to hear what he's saying. Every once in a while, though, he'd just bend down while he's walking and pick up a rock, put it in his pocket, and just keep walking, not make any mention of it. And then later on, could be 10 minutes later, could be three hours later, he'd pull that rock out and say, okay, everybody take out your rock. And then he would teach an incredible lesson about you know, dealing with this rock. Those of us who happened to notice that he picked up a rock and followed suit felt really proud of ourselves. Others of us were like, wait, what rock? What's he talking about? And it's kind of embarrassing, right? But the, the point sunk in for me. That's a picture of us following our rabbi Jesus. It's not fandom from afar. We go where he goes. We walk how he walks. We don't always know why. We just know If he's picking up a rock, I'm picking up a rock too. If you prayed a prayer once, accepting Jesus into your heart, and you think that just because of that you're good with God, please consider the ongoing nature of Jesus' words here. If anyone wants to come after me, he must follow me as an ongoing pattern of life. That is not to say that by living like Jesus lived, we can earn heaven, or that by living as Jesus lived, we can earn his love. That is not what this is saying. It is to say that our living like Jesus is evidence that we have indeed, genuinely, truly placed our faith in Christ. The person who truly does have saving faith in Jesus, in other words, will deny herself, will take up her cross, and will follow him. Not perfectly, but as a real new pattern of life that breaks with former patterns of that old self over there. These words of Jesus in verse 34 are hard, aren't they? Some of us were raised to equate self-denial with giving up chocolate for Lent, only to find out, wait, Jesus isn't just demanding denial of something to the self. He's demanding denial of the self itself. 
N.T. Wright summarizes verse 34 like this. Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike. That's not what the way is. But on a walk into danger and risk. Or do we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives? If you're feeling discomfort, it's okay. It's, it's actually a good sign, I think. It means you're getting it. And at the risk of increasing the discomfort momentarily, let me just make sure we notice that all of that was addressed to who? The crowds. Did you notice that? Beginning of verse 34. Jesus spends a lot of time teaching just the 12 in Mark's gospel. But Mark really wants us to know here that these words, these particular words, were not for some small group of elite super-Christians. These words are for all of us. Now, Jesus follows up those three hard things with four reasons to do those three hard things, much more briefly. Uh, you can tell there are four reasons because each one starts with the word for, F-O-R. Take a look there at verses 35 through 38, and you'll notice four, 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 four. Those denote each of the four reasons. Reason one, losing your life is the only way to save it. Losing your life is the only way to save it. That's the first reason. Uh, take a look at verse 35 with me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I haven't found a reliable source verifying that this was ever actually done. Maybe, maybe someone here knows, but you've probably heard somewhere a description about old monkey traps that traders would hollow out a coconut, you heard this, and stake the hollowed out coconut to the ground and place a banana inside, right? And the, the idea is the monkey won't be able to get its hand out while grasping the banana, but it wants the banana so badly that it won't let the banana go, so it stays there stuck until the hunters come. I don't know if any of that is actually true or not, uh, but whether or not that is what monkeys actually do, it is a good picture of what we do. We won't let go of what we think will bring life, but because of that, we actually end up losing our lives. Like the monkey, we don't understand that losing the banana, so to speak, is the only way to save our life. What's the banana for us? It's, it's this worldly temporal life that we clutch to at the expense of the eternal life to come. And if the life to come really is filled with infinite pleasures, like the Bible suggests it is, and if it really goes on for an infinite duration, as the Bible teaches that it does, then the difference between this life and that one is actually bigger than the difference between the banana and the monkey's life. In other words, our miscalculation is actually the error of the greater magnitude. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Wait, now, losing my life for Jesus is one thing, but losing my life for the sake of the gospel? What's that about? Well, it's often only when Christians have shared the good news, the gospel, that they start experiencing threats to their lives, historically speaking. And personally speaking, in eighth grade, uh, none of my friends seemed to mind that I was a Christian. They didn't care that I went to youth group, didn't care that I read my Bible every day until I started talking about it. Once I started talking about what Jesus had done for me and how that had impacted my life, that's when their treatment of me started to change. 
Friend, if you are keeping your religion to yourself as a life accessory that is hidden from a watching world, you may succeed in keeping people off your back for a little while, but the life that you think you're saving may be saved at the cost of your life with a capital L. In the end, losing your life here for Jesus and for the gospel is the only way to save it for eternity. Reason two, to do those three hard things. Your life is more important than worldly gain. Your life is more important than worldly gain. Uh, Look at verse 36 again. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. You may have a footnote there indicating that in this verse and the next, the word translated soul is actually the same word that was translated life in the previous verse. In other words, this is just developing the same argument one step for, further. What do you gain if you hold on to the banana but are trapped by hunters? And for us, the lesson is clear. Even if we gained more than anyone has ever gained on this earth, to trade eternity for this just blip on the radar that is our human existence here on earth would be the most foolish trade anyone's ever made. Yet, that's what we do. We treat worldly gain as more important. For example, sure, I'm married, but you don't understand. This younger woman makes me feel alive. It would be inauthentic to suppress the fact that I've fallen in love. Or, sure, the Bible warns against greed, I get that, but you don't understand. I've worked hard for what I have. With how stressful my life is, I deserve the pile of toys that I've hoarded so I can play a little bit on the weekends. Friends, what is gained if we gain all the things that promise to make us happy in this world but lose our eternal lives because we never actually denied ourselves, took up our crosses, and followed Jesus. Reason three. You can't purchase life with worldly gain. You can't purchase life with worldly gain. It'd be one thing if by accumulating all this worldly gain, all the stuff this world wants, we could buy back the eternal life that was lost in verse 36. But according to verse 37, we can't. Instead, we'll hear God saying, you're trying to buy your way in using as payment the very things you spurned me for? That currency holds no value here. And we'll realize in that moment, or, or we won't, that what we just tried to do to pay a ransom for our life is exactly what Jesus already did for us. These words in verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? They would have reminded Jesus' listeners of Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. Here they are side by side. See the similarities here? Psalm 49, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for life is costly. No payment is ever enough. And so Jesus says, what can a man give in return for his soul? Why would Jesus allude to Psalm 49 here? Well, the psalm happens to be a reminder, if you go back and read it, to poor people who are tempted to fear the powerful. And, Jesus, and, and the psalmist is saying, remember, wealth can't ransom the powerful from death. As such, Jesus' listeners would have known that. And they would have heard Jesus saying here, if you follow me, you're going to face hostility from powerful people. Herod just killed John the Baptist right before this in the story. Right? The religious leaders are getting ready to do the same to me, Jesus just told them. 
But those who follow me, Jesus says, though poor and powerless, will be seen to be on the right side of all this in the end. So to put verse 37 all back together, no matter how powerful you become, you won't have currency that can pay your ransom. That means either you follow me, Jesus, by denying yourself, taking up your cross, accepting the ransom that I've paid, or your life will be lost. Reason four. Avoiding shame in this life will result in eternal shame. Final reason, avoiding shame in this life will result in eternal shame. Look for that in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It makes sense for Jesus to use language here about being ashamed because as he has already suggested, this death to self is often going to be felt in situations in which we're vocal about our faith around people who will persecute or mock or ridicule or disrespect us for it. But Jesus clarifies for us the choice that we're faced with is not actually the choice subject yourself to shaming or don't subject yourself to shaming. That's not the choice that's in front of us, actually. It's more like subject yourself to shaming at the hands of people now or subject yourself to shaming at the hands of God and the angels for eternity. I'm not making that up. Look at, do you see those two audiences in verse 38? Adulterous and sinful generation, the Father and the holy angels two audiences. We all live our lives in front of those same two audiences. This adulterous and sinful generation and God with his holy angels. There are millions of those angels, by the way, if you go back and read in Daniel 7. Just so we make sure we're picturing the scene rightly. Imagine that for a moment. What it means for us that we are all living our lives before those two audiences. This generation on one hand. God and his angels on the other hand. Whose praise do we crave? One of those two groups will turn their backs on us in shame. Which group's displeasure do we desperately want to avoid? We may think we're escaping when we get out of a particular situation without sharing our faith and taking the heat that maybe comes with that. No sharing of faith, no mockery, right? And we, listen, we all have moments where we slip up and fail to be courageous. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about if shame at association with Jesus becomes our settled pattern of life, then we're not escaping at all. Instead, we're avoiding the frying pan by hopping into the fire. And unfortunately, that imagery is not an exaggeration. It's pretty wild, though, when you zoom out on this and realize that here's a man in his early 30s in an obscure part of the world claiming that the eternal destiny of all humans on earth, past, present, and future, is based solely on their relationship with him. Like what? If those words came out of the mouth of any one of us here, the rest of us would rightly say, he's not only crazy, he's dangerous. So why is it not dangerous or even crazy on Jesus' lips? 
I think the answer is embedded in this very verse. The one speaking these words is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Daniel 7 tells us. And Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with this passage. Listen to this. I saw in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. If those words written centuries before Jesus are actually about him, as he's claiming that they are right here, if Jesus is the one who will come riding on the clouds, if Jesus is the one before whom we will all stand in the throne room, now it is right for him to speak as though your eternal destiny and mine rests squarely on our relationship with him. Not only is it right, I'd go a step further to say it would be unloving of him to allow us to go on with our projects of self-actualization without being this direct with us. So our big idea today is this. As we follow Jesus, let's gain true life by cutting ties with our worldly selves. As we follow Jesus, let's gain true life through cutting ties with our worldly selves. And wow, if it, if it wasn't for that offer of true life, eternal life, life to the fullest extent, this passage would be very bad news, wouldn't it? It would just be correcting the modern Western emphasis on self-expression with the traditional Eastern emphasis on self-suppression. But there's good news that undergirds this passage that isn't offered by either the traditional or the modern paradigms. The traditional, remember, says, it's not about your happiness. Sacrifice your life for the life of the community. The modern says, it is about your happiness. Life is found in prioritizing the authentic self. The gospel corrects both by saying, yes, do seek your happiness. Just seek it where it can be found eternally, namely in denying yourself to die and rise again with Jesus. After all, Jesus, he isn't saying these hard words about dying because he's like some sort of tough love, hard-nosed high school football coach. He's, he's saying these hard words about dying because there literally is no other way. He himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Yet he came to die in our place to suffer the punishment we deserved. And so the way to follow him leads us straight to the cross. That Jesus died and therefore calls us to die, that's the ultimate offense in our age. It's the opposite of self-expression. It's self-denial, which is exactly what our world is working so hard to exterminate. But waiting for us on the other side of death to self is a reward, uh, a life that this world could never, ever offer. Friend, if you have yet to take hold of the life that is truly life, why not today? Today could be the day when you lay down the old self with its desires and dreams. Let's be honest, it wasn't satisfying you anyway. There's abundance of life to the full on the other side for the one who puts their faith in Christ. Any of us would love to talk to you about that and pray with you and uh, help you get started on that journey. But if you have begun that journey of following Jesus already, hear this. If 
following Jesus causes you to lose your social agenda as you lose access to certain circles you used to run in. If following Jesus causes you to lose your political agenda as you lose influence in the spaces where you used to have influence. If following Jesus causes you to lose even your spiritual agenda as you have to let go of the things you hoped that you would do for the kingdom. Remember, there's life waiting for us on the other side. A life that can only be saved by laying this life down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the call to come and die is not some sort of ascetic, masochistic invitation, but rather is an invitation to the fullest of life. We thank you that it's because of what awaits us on the other side, both in this life and in the life to come, in the intimacy of relationship with you, fullness of pleasures at your right hand, that we gladly and willingly do what you gladly and willingly did as you came to empty yourself and lay down your life. We want to follow in your footsteps uh, in gratitude for the ransom that you paid for us that we could never pay for ourselves with all of our good works, with all of the possessions, with all of the worldly pleasures that we could accumulate. Thank you for paying what we could never pay. In Jesus' name.